I'm sure you guys know how absolutely tempting it would have been for them just to get up and sing three Christmas carols and then hand it off to me. But they didn't, and they, uh, they put a lot into that, and I, I thank them personally for that. And then uh, I thank all of you for coming to church on Christmas Day. I, I think uh, Isaiah chapter 10, verse 22 is very appropriate for you when it says, only a remnant of them will return. That's you guys. I've never taken a passage so out of context as I just did right there. <laughs> but that's you guys, and, and, and I'm just grateful you're here. My kids and I, we were kind of, uh, I don't know if arguing is right, but we were going back and forth on the way down here today guessing how many people would be at church on Sunday. And the kids kept saying to me, you know, it's going to be us and three other families. <laughs> so kids, look around. Only a remnant of them will return, but you guys are here, and that's awesome. I, I, I do want to do this. I know you've stood a lot today, uh, but I'm going to read for you the gospel story. And as many of you know, in days of old, when they would read the gospel story, out of immense respect for God, they would stand. And so as we read the gospel story, why don't you stand with me right now, and then I'll pray, and then you can sit for the rest of our time together, all right? So I'm going to be reading out of Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, and you can follow along with me if you want to up there on the screen. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to his son, and he called his name Jesus. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Would you bow with me and pray? Father, uh, these dear people have come to church here on Christmas Day, Sunday, to worship you, to focus their sights on you, to give glory and honor to you uh, as the only one deserving of it. And so I pray, God, that as we talk uh, briefly now about the meaning of Christmas and Jesus coming into this world and who he was and what difference he can make in our lives, I pray, God, that you might give us ears to hear and eyes to see, that you might... Uh, rejuvenate our hearts once again to the things that you have revealed. God, thank you for your goodness and for your grace. Thank you for the time of worship we've had that has hopefully uh, made our hearts more tender and our minds more attuned to your th the things that you want to share with us. So share with them now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So like all of you, if I don't miss my guess, I, I have a TV at home and I love to channel surf. It drives my wife crazy, just like all some of you as well. And about five or six years ago during Christmas time, I was channel surfing one night and I came across Anderson Cooper's show back then called 360. It's kind of like a dateline thing where he would just talk about various issues of the day. 
And I didn't usually watch Anderson Cooper, but uh, as I flipped to the show that day, he was trying to ask and answer the question, what is a Christian? It was Christmas time. What is a Christian? And I thought, I'm a pastor. I'm going to dial into this one. And as I watched the hour-long program, Anderson Cooper 360, on what is a Christian, I got to tell you, I had an experience that I think has forever changed the way that I approach our culture and this world. Because you see, what he did in answering the question, what is a Christian, is that he didn't go to the Bible and just read the gospel stories and say, you know, what would the Bible say about what is a Christian? No, he looked at various various groups of Christians around our nation, and as he looked at these various groups, he asked the question, looking at them, what do they tell us that a Christian really is? And he basically boiled it down to four groups in America that really do exist. First, he looked at a group of Christians that exist in lots of churches today that trump their morality as kind of their best foot forward. You all know the deal, the culture wars. It's Christians that talk a lot about abortion, prayer in schools, the Ten Commandments. It's the moral crowd in church for very good reason because the Bible contains a lot of morality, but it's Christians whose loudest voice is a moral voice. And his point was is that when you listen to some Christians, you would think that what it means to be a Christian is that you need to alter your morality and start getting on board with God's morality. And if you do, that makes you a Christian. That was one answer he gave. Then as he looked at another group of Christians, he looked at what we might call the end times Christians. And all of you know Christians like that, whose loudest voice is an end times voice, who talk all the time about what is to come in the end times and what's going to happen at the end. And we have different camps that bicker back and forth with each other as to what the end times are going to contain. But you would think in listening to them, that what it means to be a Christian is simply to long for Jesus' return, to understand what his return is going to be about, and to talk about his return all the time. And then as he continued on, he talked about a third camp, and it's what we might call the success or money camp, the blessings camp among Christians. You listen to some TV preachers, and all they seem to talk about is the fact that if you follow Jesus, he's going to bless you. Your marriage will be great, your finances will be great, your job will be great. That if you just become a Christian, then blessings materially will flow upon your life. It's the success and money crowd. You listen to some Christians, you'd think that the heart of Christianity was success and money. And then he noticed a fourth camp of Christians today, and this one is mainly among our younger set, and it's what we call the activist crowd or the missional crowd. It's the generation behind me as your pastor. It's the generation that basically says, stop sitting on your duff, enough pew sitting, let's get out of the pews into culture and let's be activists. Let's get involved in justice issues and all of that. And he noted that there are some Christians where, again, if you followed them around for a month, what you discern that being a Christian is, is being an activist. Add all that up. Morality, end times, success and money, activism. Four different camps of Christians that Anderson Cooper followed around in his little special there and said that if you were just to look at what they did and say, you discern that these are the things that it means to be a Christian. And as I was watching this show, I thought to myself, okay, obviously that's not what the core of being a Christian is, so he's now going to get to what the Bible says really being a Christian is about. But he didn't. He stopped the show there. 
as any secular person might do, he stopped the show there and basically said, by implication, you make up your own mind as to what a Christian really is. And I got to tell you, folks, as a pastor, my heart was broken. As a Christian, my heart was broken. Because don't get me wrong, I believe as an outflow of Christianity that you're going to have a better morality. That as an outflow of Christianity, you're going to probably be interested in the end times. God will probably bless you in many ways as you follow him and trust him for even material things in your life. And certainly as an outflow of our Christianity, we need to be involved with justice issues. None of those things are wrong issues. It's just that none of those are the core of what it means to be a Christian. All of those things, at best, are an outflow of what it means to be a Christian. I don't mean to be crass about it, but they are window dressing to what it actually means to live in the house of Christianity. And so I want to talk about this morning, because this is what Christmas is all about, as to, as to what really is a Christian. What does the Bible say that a Christian really is? What does a Christian really believe? What is it about Jesus that is the core that you and I must latch on to? And believe it or not, the story that we read when you were standing, the story that we've all heard at Christmas time, it contains the core, the nuggets of truth of what it means for you and me to be followers of Jesus. And to accomplish our purposes and our just a few moments we have remaining here this morning, I want to ask and answer three questions about Jesus. I want to ask and answer three questions that I believe anybody who wants to know what a Christian is must ask and satisfactorily answer about Jesus, this baby coming into the world who would grow up to be a man and die on a cross for our sins. And the first question is, who is he? Who is he? And it's a good question to ask. And before we answer it, what I want to do is take, go back to our story and let's let the story that we read just a few minutes ago answer this question for us. Now, getting back into the story, obviously Joseph is having a dream here and in this dream an angel appears to him. And it's a real thing that's happening here. I mean, it's a real angel. It's a real dream. And yet, as we all know, the reason that the angel is appearing to Joseph in this dream is to try to clear up a huge misunderstanding that Joseph is having right now about the birth of Jesus. You see, we've got to assume that Mary had told Joseph about her angel appearance and the virgin birth and all of that. And yet, we now find Joseph kind of confused whether we know we believe Mary or not, is still up in the air. And we find him confused, wondering what's really going on here. I mean, is Mary telling the truth or is she not telling the truth? Can I really believe this or not believe this? I mean, he's wondering how in the world all this is going to take place. And so the angel appears to Joseph in a dream to set things straight. And it's in the words of the angel to Joseph that we find the answer to our first question who is Jesus? Look up here on the screen. Look at verse 20 of Matthew 1. It says, But as he, Joseph, considered these things, in other words, breaking off the engagement, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So in other words, he's saying, she's telling you the truth. Don't freak out. Don't do something bonehead here. She's telling you the truth, and you need to trust what God has revealed. 
Now, in the midst of the angel saying this, there is a small little phrase that gives us the first half of the clue to Jesus' identity that you and I don't want to miss. And I put it in highlight for you there. It's the phrase, Son of David. Son of David. An easy phrase to drive by if there was ever one. But let's park in front of it for just a second. When it says there that Joseph, son of David, what you need to know is that in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, they would use this same phrase to describe Jesus. So it's saying that Joseph was a son of David in the lineage of David and that Jesus was also in the lineage, uh, in the lineage of David. Uh, Luke will tell us as well that Joseph was a son of David. So three times you got this repeat here that Jesus and Joseph were sons of David. And we got to ask, what is the New Testament authors trying to get at there? What are they trying to communicate to you and me? I mean, in one sense, this doesn't make sense. I mean, Joseph's lineage would have gone back to King David, but Jesus? I mean, they just made it very clear that Joseph's going to have nothing to do with this, that Mary will be the biological mother, but the Holy Spirit is going to be the father, and we're going to see that that connotes deity here. But why would they make it clear that Jesus is of the lineage of David as well as Joseph? And though some commentators try to answer that by saying that it just connotes the kingly aspect of the Messiah, which is true, there has to be something more to this by bringing Joseph into it. And the answer is very revealing to you and I. It's simply this, and that is that what they point out is that Joseph has legal paternity over Jesus, just like adopting today. And that what Matthew is trying to bring home here to you and me is that Jesus, though as we're going to see in a second here, fully God, was also completely human. He had a biological mother, Mary, human, and he had a legal paternal father, Joseph, a son of David, just like Jesus will be called a son of David, showing that he had two human parents. It's Matthew's way of trying to bring home to you and I that this guy who's going to be born Jesus is fully and 100% human. Don't miss this, folks. It's, folks, it's key. The angel is telling us here that this baby is going to be a human being, a man just like you and me, with a biological father, Mary, and a legal father, son of David, Joseph, and that he's human fully in the flesh. Now, hang on to that and notice a second key to the identity of Jesus in the interplay here between Joseph and the angel in verses 22 to 23. And we don't need to belabor this one because I think all of you get this. We even talked about it last night. But it says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So obviously there, two things you don't want to miss. It's saying that a virgin will conceive. It's a miraculous birth. There's going to be a legal paternal father, but no actual biological father. It's the Holy Spirit who is bringing this divine pregnancy into Mary's life. And if there's any confusion as to what that means, it means God with us. So this baby who's going to be born is God come in the flesh. Theologians would call it the incarnation, which simply means deity taking on human form. And this is obviously incredibly significant here. 
As John would go on to say, as he tries to make sense of this, I don't have the scripture on the screen, but just listen. John would say, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So put this together, folks. I know that was about six or seven minutes of some rugged theology, but put this together. Son of David, having a human mother, having a legal father, complete with a human lineage and past, fully human, and then Emmanuel, God with us, the fullness of God, come in this baby Jesus, and now you're ready for the answer as to who he is. Look up here on the screen. He is completely God, and he is completely man in one. It took the church three centuries back around the turn of 2,000 years ago to finally get this right. He is completely God and completely man in one. Listen, not 50% God and 50% man like some half and half deal. Not 100% God, but just looking or appearing like a man like some appearance deal. And certainly not 100% man with just a few divine qualities. No, none of that. But 100% God and 100% man come to us in Jesus Christ. That's who he is. It's truly God becoming flesh. It's God coming to this earth in the man Jesus, retaining full deity, but also fully becoming a human being. It's a divine mystery. You can't have 100% and 100% equal 100%. But in God, it did happen. And though we're going to get to why in just a minute, what you don't want to miss, folks, is the absolute profundity and relevance of God choosing to become one of us. Feeling like us, smelling like us, hurting like us, laughing like us, entering deeply and fully into our mess, and yet remaining completely and fully God. It never happened before this. It's never happened since. God becoming a man. And as I said last night, it shows so incredibly his love for you and me, that he would go to these lengths to reach out to us. You know, there's a great story that came out a, a, a few years back when I was doing my study for this, this series here, and uh, it was a story about one of the tallest men at that time on planet Earth. Look up here on the screen, a guy by the name of Bao Zhixun. Uh, Bao Zhixun is in China. He's a humble sheep herdsman, and he stands about seven foot nine inches tall. He, he's four inches taller than Yao Ming, the basketball player who uh, retired last year. He, he's two feet taller than your pastor, me, this guy is. And, and so that's one very, very tall man. And he's not a basketball player. He's actually a humble, quiet, 60-year-old herdsman from Inner Mongolia. And again, up until 2009, he held the Guinness World Book of Records for the tallest living man on planet Earth. And he hit the news about four or five years ago in an unusual story. 
About five years ago, two dolphins from China's Royal GD Ocean Aquarium got deathly sick because they ate some of the plastic from the edge of the pool that they were in. Kind of like swallowing a bottle of aspirin when you're five years old, it was going to hurt you or kill you if something was not done about it because these plastic pieces were way too large to digest. And so they decided that the best course of action, obviously, was to remove these plastic pieces using surgical instruments down through the throat of the dolphins. But as they tried to do this, because of the shape of the dolphins' stomachs, as well as the contractions in response to the instruments, it was too hard for them to get the plastic out. And so they decided to try to reach down with a human arm. Because reaching down with a human arm would allow you to organically feel your way through the dolphin's stomach. I know this is gross, but they would allow to do that and then reach the plastic out. The only problem was is that every arm they tried, do you see where we're going with this, was too short. And so they actually flew. Give me another picture here. This herdsman in from Inner Mongolia where because his arms, now get this, are three and a half feet long, that's a long arm, three and a half feet long, he was actually able to reach down into the dolphin's stomachs and pull the plastic pieces out, and he saved the dolphins. It was an incredible, incredible story by a humble sheep herdsman who was able to save these dolphins because he had unusually long arms. And here's my point to you and me today. God in Jesus, maybe you need to see the incarnation this way, has unusually long arms. That's what the incarnation connotes to you and me. That God reached way down into the belly of this world, this beautiful, life-giving, yet sin-filled and in many ways sick world, and only a God with long arms could reach us. And Jesus coming to this world is God's way of saying that my long arm is going to reach out to this world and, and offer you the help and healing that you need. Just like a herdsman is the only one who could do it for the dolphins, what God knows is that he's the only one that could help us. When people say to me, and they do quite often, why did God have to send Jesus to this world? The answer is simple. As you're going to see in a second here, because our sin separates us so much from God that if God hadn't reached out to us with his unusually long arms, we wouldn't stand a chance. Please don't ever confuse what the incarnation is about. It's God's long arms, his love reaching down to you and me. Now, let's ask the second question that the story answers for us, and we've kind of hinted to this already, but that is, then why did God come here? Why did God decide to visit this planet? I mean, he didn't have to. He made the entire universe. He could vacation wherever he wanted to. And let's face it, visiting this planet for God would not exactly be a vacation. And so why did he come here? And I don't know if you caught it earlier or not when we were reading the stories you stood, but Matthew goes to great lengths to make the answer to this unambiguous and crystal clear. Look again at verse 21. It says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now here it is. For he will save his people from their sins. 
Focus on that last phrase. He will save his people from their sins. Folks, don't miss this. Jesus didn't come simply to make us more moral. He didn't come to make us fanatics about the end times. He didn't come to bless us materially. And he didn't come to make us a bunch of activists. Though all of those things very well might be an outpouring of your Christian faith, he came to forgive us of our sin. Amen? Let's take another run at that. He came to forgive us of our sin. Amen? Amen. And if anybody ever asks you, if Anderson Cooper ever interviews you, I hope that's the answer that you give. That out of all the other things that Christians do, out of all the other things going on in your life, just remember verse 21, that the reason that he came was to save you, your neighbor, and everybody around you from their sins. Now, now, now this is a hard one, let's admit it, for our world today. Because how many times outside of church do you ever hear the word sin? I never hear it. I mean, I sit in Starbucks and read books and study, and I read newspapers, and I read New York Times bestseller books, and I talk with neighbors across the fence, and I'm telling you, I never hear the word sin outside of church today. And so our, our, our culture that you and I live in today has a real aversion to not just using the word sin, but I would even submit to you to this idea of sin. It's obviously not a flowery topic. And yet the reality is, now don't miss this, is that if you do not admit and own and understand your own sin, you will never get the gospel of Jesus Christ. You'll never get the good news if there's not some bad news that you and I need to latch on to that makes the good news so good. And so let me just talk for a brief second about sin. I'm not, I'm not going to talk too much about this, but I, I ran across a quote uh, a few years ago by a pastor in Toronto by the name of Charles Price, who's a great pastor of the People's Church in Toronto, Canada. And I thought this quote on what sin is was just great and kind of cutting through all the stuff that our culture puts up today. Look up here on the screen. He says, sin is not a measure of how bad we are, it's a measure of how good we're not. And I think he's on to something here. Sin is not a measure of how bad we are. It's a measure of how good we're not. Do you, do you understand what he's talking about there? If you try to see sin as a measure of how bad we are, you'll weasel out of it easily. You'll weasel out of it right away. Because what will you do? You'll compare yourself to your neighbor, or you'll compare yourself to Ted Bundy, or you'll compare yourself to, to, to somebody in history and realize that compared to them, you're not that bad, right? And, and so if you see sin as just a measure of how bad you are, the reality is you're never going to admit your sin. However, if you flip it around and see your sin, as the Bible asks you to, as a measure of how good you're not compared to God's holy standard, now you got nothing to weasel out of. Now you're backed into a corner and you got to say to God, Uncle, uh, you're right, I admit it, I'm a sinner in need of forgiveness. And God in his wonderful grace says, give me a hug. I came to forgive you in Jesus Christ. And so admitting your sin ends up not being a bad thing. It ends up being a life-giving thing. But you got to stop comparing yourself to your neighbor. You need to start seeing that though there are differences in morality between you and your neighbor, you have one thing in common, and that's that none of you are good enough to please a holy God. 
So I was flying earlier this week, and, uh, and uh, we, we missed our connection flight. And, and don't you hate that when that happens? And you can, at least me, I'm a high-control guy, so I can see it a mile away. I see it before the airlines does. I, I, I really do. Like, I'm, I'm looking at where that plane's coming from. That thing's not going to come in time. They haven't told us yet, but I'm telling you, we're not going to make that connection. And sure enough, like the prophet of old, I predicted what was going to happen, and we miss our connecting flight. And as I was sitting there in the airport and, and thinking about that, you, you know what thought hit me is I thought, you know, if you miss your connecting flight by, by five minutes, or if you miss your connecting flight by, by, say, 10 minutes or even 20 minutes, uh, though there might be a big difference between 5 minutes and 20 minutes, depending on how far you have to run in the airport, what do you all have in common? You missed your connecting flight. And, and I thought that's the way our world tends to see morality. You know, some people mess up so much that they miss their connecting flight in two hours. You know, they just can't seem to get to the next gate. Other people have a very tightly controlled, orderly life, like me, and, 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 and they, they're going to miss their connecting flight if it's only five or ten minutes. And yet the reality is, is that whether you miss it by two hours or five minutes, you still miss your connecting flight. And that's the way God asks us to see our morality. Some of you might be better than others, but you all have one thing in common, and that is that you have a problem with God. It's a sin problem. You need forgiveness and the angel announced that Jesus came to save us from our sin. So here's the answer to the question. Why did he come? To bring you back to God your Father. To bring you back to God your Father. Give me a couple clicks here, guys, because I, I bypassed an illustration here. So go back to the answer there if you can. Oh, don't you love computers? All right, there you go. Um, one more. Give me here. Look for the answer there. All right. Come on, we're slow this morning, aren't we, on the computer? All right, they'll get it eventually. Why did he come here? To bring you, there it is. Nope, that's not it. Well, aren't you glad that we only have one service and all this goes on the web? All right. The answer is to bring you back. There you go, to bring you back to God your Father. People have said to me over the years, why do you say bring you back? to God your Father. I say that in, in, in the sense of all humanity. At one point, humanity had a life-giving, right, good relationship with God. Have you read about it? It's the first two chapters of the Bible, especially Genesis 2. And yet in Genesis 3, we made a mess of everything and God kicked us out of the garden. And so God's whole redemptive plan, now don't miss this because this is the good news, God's whole redemptive plan is to bring as many of his children back into a right relationship with him. And the reason that Jesus came was to eventually die on a cross for our sins, again, to save us from our sin, so that you and I might be brought back to our rightful place of a relationship with Almighty God. It's the core of Christianity. And please see, this is why I say so often that the Christian faith is a relational, spiritual endeavor that you and I are on. There's material things that happen there are blessings that we get, but the core of our Christian faith is a relational and spiritual mission that God was after in Jesus to bring us back to God. And this leads us then to the final question. We have just a few minutes left that we need to ask and answer before we leave today. And it's the question that I believe Anderson Cooper would have asked if he had finished his query. And it's the question, what difference does it make? I mean, God came to, yeah, you're right, <laughs> all the difference. God came to earth. He came to bring us back to a relationship with himself. And here's the answer that I give, and that is that it changes everything. At least it has for me. 
That, that when I became a Christian 30 years ago this year, it changed everything about my life. And, you know, in preparation for this study on angels that my wife suggested I do a few years back, I reread a classic book about Jesus by a theologian named Raymond Brown. Raymond Brown taught for several years in a respected seminary in the 1960s, and then he wrote a very academic and rather dry book on the birth narratives of Jesus. But in preparation for this series, I thought it was worth a read. And like so many books written back then, uh, it was mainly written in the indicative, no illustrations, just a lot of dry exegesis. But toward the end of the book, he started to wrap it up by giving some sharing with him, with his audience, what he thought some of the relevance was of Jesus' incarnation and of God coming to earth. And I want you to look up here on the screen, and I want you to follow along as I read for you what Brown says at the end of his book, because this moved me. Give me a click here. Yeah, that's just the first part of it, so pause there. He says, if Jesus is not true God of true God, then we do not know God in human terms. Even if Jesus is the most perfect creature far above all others, he can tell us only at second hand about God who really remains almost as distant as the unmoved mover of Aristotle. Give me another click here. He says, only if Jesus is of God do we know that God's love was so real that he gave himself for us. Only if Jesus is of God do we know that it is of his nature to redeem the creation that he brought into being. Only if Jesus is of God do we know what God is like. For in Jesus we see God translated into terms that we can understand. And that's why I suggest to you that once you get the incarnation of Jesus Christ, it changes everything. Because I love how Brown says it, God's love was so real that it was of his nature to become a human to redeem us. And so instead of a, a God who's always down on humanity, instead of a God that so many people tend to picture of God, and that's that he's just bent on slam dunking us through the goal of life, just ready to squash us whenever we do anything wrong, the God that Jesus came to represent is a God who, if you will but bend the knee to him and follow him, will lavish love and grace upon you the rest of your life. He will always be there for you. You know, the author of Hebrews latched onto this at one point in his writings, and I love how he says this, one of my favorite verses in Hebrews. I put it up here for you in the New International Version translation just because it's so down to earth. He says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Do you understand what that's saying there? It's saying that whenever you need him, he's there for you. As Jesus said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Why? Because he gets it. He understands. He knows what it's like to be tempted with sin. He knows what it's like to live in your body. He knows what it's like to walk in your shoes. He knows what it's like to deal with the disappointment, the depression, the heartache, the discouragement, friends letting you down, jobs that don't uh, give what you thought they would give. He, he, he gets all of that. 
He lived life here with you and I, and yet he lived it perfectly as the Son of God. So not only does he get it, but he can help us. And so the reality is, is that when you finally get what the incarnation is about, you got the best friend your heart has ever been longing for in Jesus Christ. And the second way that this profoundly changes us is that as we've already established, it changes the way that you define Christianity. Because no longer would hopefully our church ever, ever define Christianity simply in moral terms or end time terms or success terms or activism terms. No, I hope that Scottsdale Bible Church, if Dateline ever set a camera crew here, would define Christianity as a living, vital, sin-forgiving relationship with Almighty God. Which is why in our vision statement, by the way, that we say we dream of a church that becomes a community of Christ followers who are marked with an unwavering faith in Jesus Christ and an unconditional love for each other. Those are the two things we're after here in this church, that, that, that we would all have an unwavering faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Because that's the most important thing. And that is an outpouring of that, an unconditional love, not just for each other, but even for lots of lost ones who need to find him as well. That's the simple vision of our church. That's what we work, work toward each moment of each day. And so I hope, I hope, that on this Christmas Sunday, as you and I have paused in the midst of stockings and gift giving and eating and all the other things we're going to do today, that you are now filled with what the meaning of Christmas is about. Who is he? He's God come in the flesh. Why did he come? To save you and all your friends from their sin. And why is this important? Because it has the power and capacity to change everything, to change everything about your life. That's why Christmas is so important. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that uh, we can take some time out of our Christmas celebration today and worship you and be sung to and to listen to scripture and then to talk briefly as we had about what Christmas is all about. And Father, I thank you that your word as always is ever so clear. And I pray God for every person here this morning that as they, Lord, think about their own lives and what kind of bended knee they have as they look to Jesus, that, God, our knee would be bent evermore as of this morning, and that, God, we would certainly, certainly honor once again here today that you coming to earth and demanding our allegiance, our submission to you, is certainly what we want to do. And so, God, I pray that as we continue as a church to be a community of unwavering faith and unconditional love, that, God, you would continue to rot those purposes in our hearts and our minds. Lord, we're not perfect. That's why we need our sin forgiven. But we do want to become more faith-filled, uh, more love-filled followers of your son, Jesus. So do that in us, we pray. And Lord, we'll give all the glory and all the honor to you. And we pray this in Christ's holy and precious name. And we all say together, amen. amen. God bless you. Merry Christmas. We'll see you next week.